Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. If you were not here last Sunday, then you may not know that you have walked into part two of a two-part sermon. So I will attempt to give a very quick recap of what we looked at last Sunday, just so that everybody's on the same page, and then we will pick up where we left off last time. But as always, we will begin by reading Paul's words here in Galatians 5, verses 1 to 15, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please now look at verse 1. Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is." But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, we do ask your blessing on this time, and I pray that it will be a time where your Spirit takes your Word and uses it in each and every heart. Jesus, speak through me to your people. Uh, reveal in us any areas where our motivations are perhaps filled with self-righteousness, where we are not fighting against sin the way you have given to us. And I pray that through all of this, you will take us and make us a people who are clearly, clearly your disciples to all those who would look in and see the relationships we have with one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, since we're picking up uh, where we left off last time, let's take just a moment to review. Let me get down to the end of that. A moment to review uh, what we learned last week so that our time this morning will flow smoothly and make sense. Last Sunday, I began our time in the Word by uh, not actually being in Galatians to start with. We started in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, primarily focused, though, on verses 34 and 35, and that is John's account of Jesus in the upper room right after Judas had left to go begin the series of events that would ultimately take Jesus to the cross. And in that moment, Jesus gives his disciples what he calls a new commandment, that new commandment being that they love one another just as he has loved them. And he says in the process of that 
uh, of that conversation, that it was by that, their love for one another, that all people would know that they are his disciples, that they love one another. And as I shared last week, that probably more than um, just about anything, if not anything else that I have studied over the past uh, 10 years, has impacted the way that I read the New Testament. Um, all of a sudden, after I understood that, I began seeing the significance of love, which appears, by the way, over and over again throughout the New Testament in a whole new light. And obviously, I bring this up because the idea of love shows up here in verses 13 and 14. The context of Paul's comments here in this particular section is that of freedom, the very thing he's been talking about since chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, while previously, up to this point, his comments about freedom have been in relation to battling the false teachers who are trying to pull the, the Galatian believers back into slavery of the law to find their salvation, here, his comments about freedom are in response to those who either, A, may be tempted to um, uh, use, or excuse me, misuse their newfound freedom in order to live a life of sin, or B, perhaps those who have actually already done it. They're, they're already using it in this way. And to use two um, what I think are high-value Scrabble words, though I don't play Scrabble, so I don't know for a fact, the former response that he was referring to there would be legalism, and the latter response that he referred to would be libertinism. I think that's how you pronounce that. Uh, let's define those words just quickly. A legalist, properly defined, is someone who believes that your salvation is based on your ability to keep the law, or a law of some sort. Uh, this is one word that is probably more misused than almost any other word within uh, Christian vocabulary. I've heard many, many times, and I've used it this way as well incorrectly before I understood it, uh, but you often hear people referred to as legalists who either have or maybe advocate for a set of, of moral standards or ethics that they think are central to the Christian life. Uh, and so anyone who is in that realm, sometimes it's called a legalist, but that is not the correct use of that word. The false teachers in Galatia are legalists, okay? These are people who are saying in order to be saved, you have to keep the Old Testament law. A libertine, on the other hand, is someone who doesn't worry about any law, right? They, they just behave however they want to behave. They, they don't find their life bound in any way by any kind of moral or ethical standard. They don't care what you think or anyone else. And so they just go out and, you know, live in whatever way they want. And Paul indicates here in verse 13 that this is actually, that second one is a real danger when you begin talking about freedom within the Christian life. He does not want them to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh, as you'll recall last week, refers to our sin nature, our old man, that piece of us that does not and cannot, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, live its life in subjection to the rule and reign of God. And it is possible that in abandoning the law, one could be tempted to live their life in the flesh in a way that would be truly wrong. And I think, as I said last week, this is being stated somewhat from the Jewish point of view. Uh, in their minds, if you want to fight against the impulses and desires of the flesh, you have to do so via the Old Testament law. So how do you keep from killing someone? Well, first you look at the law, and the law says don't kill somebody. So you're like, okay, I know I'm not supposed to kill, and now I just simply have to obey it. I obey the law that says don't kill, and now I'm good. Uh, how do I go about not committing adultery? First, I look at the law. It says don't commit adultery. So therefore, now if I obey that law to not commit adultery, I'm good to go. Well, of course, then what's the problem? If, if the law then is taken away 
first, how will anyone know what it is they are or are not supposed to do, right? Because they don't have the, the list telling them what's right and wrong. And then second, what's to stop them from then going out and murdering or committing adultery if they don't have that law to obey? That seems to be kind of the issue here. I mean, don't people need a list of like what's right and what's wrong in order to live the Christian life? That's seems to be what the Jewish uh, people here in Galatia were thinking. And then, you know, second question, is it possible that a misunderstanding or misapplication of freedom could be used to pursue, either purposefully or accidentally, a life of sin? Well, to answer that second question, and this is where we ended last time, the answer is yes. It could do that. It could be used that way to justify a life of sin, either purposefully or even accidentally. Um, Paul clearly sees that as the danger here in the Galatian church. He doesn't want them to do that. Uh, I've seen it in my you know, pack background. I've seen friends who have gone this route. I've seen people even within the realm of Cornerstone uh, who've gone that route. I named some names last week, and if you weren't here, it was because your name was mentioned. Uh, no doubt you've seen it too, right? People who have used their freedom as a guise or an excuse for then going out and just living their life however they wanted to do so, uh, at best in unwise ways or at worst in downright sinful ways. They've misunderstood or misapplied their freedom. Well, my hope is that none of us want to do that. That's, that's my hope. There's no one in here who says, yeah, I really want to misuse my freedom. I can't wait to get out of here so I can go and, and misuse it or abuse it again, uh, whether you're talking about the full spectrum of your life or even just a particular area. I hope none of us want that. And if it's true then that none of us want that, then what is the correct antidote to that kind of life? Well, before I tell you what it is, and before we really turn to the text here in Galatians, let me take a moment to tell you what it is not. And I want you just to stick with me, and I hope it'll make sense before I'm done. Here's what it is not. It is not turning back to a law. It is not turning back to a law. Now, a moment ago, I used the word legalist, and I used it purposefully. And in using it, I both told you the correct definition, which is someone who views their salvation as somehow being dependent on their adherence to a law of some sort. But I also mentioned how it is often misused by Christians to refer to those who have or advocate for a laundry list of moral or ethical standards that they see as central to the Christian life. You know the type. These are believers. I'm definitely not saying they're not, uh, but these are believers who live their Christian life by a set of standards. So Christians shouldn't drink. Christians shouldn't listen to certain types of music. Christians shouldn't watch certain types of TV shows and movies. Christians shouldn't wear certain clothing. Christians shouldn't go to certain places, etc., etc., etc. And some of you, I recognize, grew up in those kinds of churches or denominations or circles where this was your version of Christianity, where it seemed that the essence of what it meant to live as a Christian was whether or not you could live up to that set of standards, however good or bad. I'm not saying those are bad, just whatever that was, this was it. As long as you can match up to that, you were considered to be a good Christian. For those of you who didn't grow up in those kinds of churches or circles, you have probably interacted with these kinds of people, and perhaps that has left a bad taste in your mouth at some point in the past. Well, before uh, making a couple of comments about this way of thinking, we need to ask ourselves a question first. 
And the question is, why did such thinking, why did such an approach to Christianity even come into existence in the first place? What, what would lead someone or motivate someone to, to pursue Christianity in that particular way? Well, I don't think the answer to that question is um, very complicated at all. In fact, I think it's probably a mixture of at least two things. It may be more than these two things, but it's at least these two things. I'll give them to you just by way of helping us out here first. I imagine that it was no doubt a response to those who have misused their freedom in the past. It was a response to those who have misused their freedom in the past. You see this um, all the time in all kinds of areas of life. My favorite example of this is from my college days. It has nothing to do with religion whatsoever, but just... um, I went to college at uh, this little tiny Bible college in the very north woods of Wisconsin. We're talking 90 miles north of Green Bay. I used to tell people, go to the end of the earth and take a left. We're in the middle of nowhere, literally. I'm not exaggerating. It was in the deep woods of Wisconsin. So as you might imagine, it was a big hunting area, right? That was probably the majority of the houses were like little hunting lodges that were tucked back here and there. Uh, And so, you know, each fall, and I am not making this up. This is the honest truth. Each fall, all the students would get a note in their boxes reminding them that they are not allowed to go walking in the woods dressed as a deer and or wearing antlers on their head and or making deer noises. That is a legit rule that our college had. And, you know, you hear that, you get that note in your box, and your first question is, why? Right? Like, why why would we do this in the first place? But, you, you know, having now become a little more mature and experienced to life. I know why that was put in our box. That's because at some point in the past, some moron thought it would be funny to get dressed up like a deer, put antlers on his head, and go like tracing through the woods around the college making deer noises, and he probably got shot at. That's my guess. I don't know that for a fact, but that's the only possible explanation for that rule. It was in response to the actions of others. Well, um, I think this would apply also then to those I just referred to who create very very specific standards for what it means to live as a Christian. There are some of those uh, decisions that were made, no doubt, that were in response to the actions of other people that they then got to see how it took them astray. Well, you know, I, I, I saw this guy over here and, you know, he started drinking. And the next thing I know, he's addicted to alcohol and he's, he's now living in the sin of drunkenness I don't want you to end up there. I don't want me to end up there. Therefore, the easiest way to respond to that is just to say, Christians shouldn't drink. Because if we never drink, we'll never end up where that guy ended up. Um, that's the kind of thinking that I imagine happens uh, or happened quite a bit. And so I, you know, as I ask, why did such thinking even come into existence? I think the first answer is that some of it was in response to people who had misused their freedom and gone down paths they shouldn't have. Second, I am sure that it was also an attempt to fight against the flesh, and I mean that sincerely, of people who genuinely wanted to pursue personal holiness, pursue godliness. They were trying their best to fight against their sinful desires. And so, you know, the thinking in that case might go something like this. Well, all right, Christians shouldn't give in to lust. And so since Christians shouldn't give in to lust, that means then that I shouldn't watch these kinds of TV shows or these kinds of movies. Or maybe I shouldn't go to these kinds of places because if I watch these kinds of TV shows, I go to these kinds of places, it's going to tempt me to lust so I can avoid that 
by avoiding this out here. Does that make sense? Um, for those of you who are not familiar with Jewish moral practices, which is probably most of you, uh, this is similar to what the, the Jews would have called building fences around the law. That's how they would refer to it. So the easiest one to, to use as an example are the Sabbath laws. The Sabbath law said, don't work on the Sabbath. Great, okay, easy, got it, don't work on the Sabbath. So what's the problem, you know? What's work? How do you define work? Well, okay, is digging a ditch on the Sabbath work? Yeah, that's definitely work, so we shouldn't do that one. Okay, so let's, you know, let's build a fence around the law, no ditch digging on the Sabbath. What about, what about walking, though? Can I walk a mile and that be considered work? Well, yeah, a mile is definitely work. What about a half mile? Oh, no, a half mile is probably fine. Okay, so as long as, long as I'm within a half mile distance, okay, now it's not work. You see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm, I'm taking the very specific law of do not work on the Sabbath. I'm trying to define it in very practical terms by building fences around it, with the idea being that if I don't want to violate the law, I just, just never violate the fence. Don't cross the fence, and I'll never violate the law. That was, that was kind of the idea, and I think a lot of the standards that I just mentioned a few moments ago or specific ones that might be coming to your mind— are based on that same concept. Well, I don't want to lust. Well, okay, if I don't want to lust, I should probably not do these things out here. And as long as I don't do these things out here, I'll, I'll never lust. You, does that make sense? You, you following me? Same idea. So I think this is why, or at least part of the reason why, this kind of thinking came into existence. It was the response or a response to mistakes made by others in the past. And then I think it was also uh, out of a desire to live sincerely godly lives and avoid giving in to the flesh. Now, let me make two comments or give two responses, one positive and one negative, and then we'll finally look at Galatians, and hopefully this will all make sense. First, I'll give the positive response, though it kind of begins with a negative. I apologize. But um, despite the big and obvious problem that I will address next, I think that most Christians today would do well to imitate a lot of what I just described, at least in certain aspects or certain respects. You know, at the very least, despite um, whatever mistakes those people made, and, I, and look, I've talked to some of you, I've talked to other people, and you came from those backgrounds, and some of you are bitter, which is a sin. Um, you need to get over it. I get that people may have wronged you, and I'm not taking away that they wronged you, but you need to forgive and move on. But, it's, but despite whatever mistakes may have been made by those folks, let's not uh, ignore the fact that at least they were trying to live godly lives. They may not have done it perfectly. They may have made a lot of mistakes. But at least they took it seriously. At least they took personal holiness seriously, enough so that they were willing to like, make decisions about what they were going to do or what their family was going to do or not do in order to try to live a life that was pleasing to God. Uh, and the idea of personal holiness before the Lord was genuinely important to them. And as I look around at our generation of Christianity today, and I don't mean this just within the, the, you know, the walls of Cornerstone, I mean across all of Christianity as I can see it, um, I, I just don't see a lot of that anymore. I shared in the first service, not my notes, but it came to mind um, two months ago now, I don't know, three months ago, Jordan shared with me a, uh, uh, an article that he had read. Um, was it Kevin DeYoung who wrote it? Kevin DeYoung's article in the Gospel Coalition website, where he was just simply questioning, why are so many Christians watching Game of Thrones? The whole article was maybe this long online. I mean, it was really short. It was, it was just asking questions mainly. Article you could read in five minutes or less. I spent probably 15 minutes reading the comments below 
and I am not exaggerating what I'm about to say, I spent the rest of the day discouraged. Just looking at the remarks being made, the accusations and the comments and the, the things that were being talked, I was just like, what? this?" Because I expected those people who were reading that particular blog at that particular website to be a somewhat extra maturity. I don't know why I thought that, but I thought that would be the case. But I was not, I was not given that impression by the notes. I see a lot of people, a lot more people, it seems like in Christianity, excusing or ignoring sin than I see genuinely trying to fight against it. You see, you may not like hearing this, especially if you're from that background and you're angry, but hey, look, it's still true. Those folks were right about a lot of things. They were. There are things Christians shouldn't do. And there are TV shows and movies that Christians shouldn't watch. And there are places that Christians shouldn't go. There are. You don't have to like it, but it's still true. So maybe I can't or more likely shouldn't make a list of specifics for you along each of those bullet points, but that doesn't make them untrue. Turning to Christ is a call to die, to die to self, and that's going to play itself out in some very practical ways in terms of the decisions we make on a daily basis in each of those areas I just mentioned and so many more. You're going to look different, or you should look different, if you're a believer. So we should imitate them in certain components. But secondly, and here's the negative comment, unfortunately, that way of thinking has a tendency to become a law by which we judge ourselves and others. It just does. I can't, you know, maybe sit around and try to uh, analyze that and talk about that, but I'm not going to. It just has that tendency. And I want you to notice that I said a law, not the law. Again, and I've said this in the past year, I have never personally been in any context where I had anyone come to me and say, you know, for in order for you to be a good Christian, you have to live your life according to the Old Testament law. Like where they were being specific to the, the law. Never have had that. But I have had many people in various formats or various ways tell me over the years that if I want to be a good Christian, I need to live my life according to a law, a law they created, a law their church or movement or group created, whatever the case may be, a law that was thought to be the means by which one fights against the flesh. And here's the problem. The moment that our standards, our decisions, as good as they may be, become the means by which we fight against the flesh, they've crossed the line, and that's what, when it becomes a problem. Because the fact of the matter is, there is absolutely no law, Old Testament law or man-made law, that is the antidote to fighting against the impulses and desires of the flesh. So then, what is the antidote? Well, as you can see here behind me, the answer is love. As strange as that may sound to our ears when we first hear it, this is what Paul gives us. Paul writes here, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now let's just break that down for a moment. Paul's saying we're free, right? Okay, we are. We've seen that now. We are free. You're free. You are no longer, uh, you no longer have to live by the Old Testament law or any other law. 
in order to be accepted by God or to live acceptably before God. Does that then mean we can go out and live however we want? Obviously not. Paul's saying that here. We can't give in to the flesh. But the answer to that is not by going back and creating some new law. That's not how we, we fight against that tendency. The answer, he says, is to serve one another through love. That's it. If you do that, if you serve one another through love, then you will not be using your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And if you do that, then you will actually be fulfilling the entire law. So let's just quickly consider each of those. First, serving one another in love is the antidote to allowing our freedom to become an opportunity for the flesh. Uh, when he says, through love, serve one another, I cannot help but think of Jesus's words in John 13, verses 34 and 35 right? Because this is exactly how Jesus loved us, right? He, through love, served us. In John 13, as that chapter opens up, you see him on his hands and knees washing the dirty feet of his disciples. I mean, you're talking the God of creation, the sovereign Lord of the universe, on his hands and knees washing the dirty feet of 12 guys still at that point, one of whom's going to betray him and the other 11 are all going to abandon him. He's on his hands and knees. God, hands and knees, washing feet through love. He's serving. If we fast forward just a few hours from then, picture him on the cross. Again, the God of creation, the one who spoke the world into existence, who by his very power holds the molecules of the soldiers who are crucifying him together. The one who's powerful enough to call 10,000 legions of angels to his aid if he wanted to. He hangs there naked, beaten beyond almost all recognition, dying for our sins. Not for his own sins, for our sins. He, the, the very people who had sinned against him, he's paying for what we did. And not because we're all like sitting there around the cross like, Jesus, please pay for our sins. We're ignorant of our condition and enemies at this point, and yet he's dying for us still. Through love, he served us. And I just would note a couple of things about that. One, the kind of love Jesus showed us was not dependent on our worthiness of that love. So he's not, you know, loving us because we're worthy or we're so lovable or, you know, lovely. It's in spite of who we are, not because of it. Number two, what he did for us in love was actually against or apart from everything that he deserved. You know, we've been talking about freedom a lot. Something I haven't said, but I, I kind of hope you get it just naturally. Do you realize of all the people I could possibly mention, no one's freer than Jesus, right? He's got the most freedom. He's, he's the one who is ultimately free. He had the freedom to both deserve and receive recognition for who he truly was. He had the freedom to exercise his divine power and sovereignty. He had the freedom to choose any other path than the one he chose. He didn't have to do what he did, he, he, but he chose it. He had the freedom to choose any other path, and yet he lays every bit of that aside purposefully, Philippians 2 because he chose to love us. And Paul gives us this as a way of counteracting any temptation on our part to use our real and genuine freedom 
in ways that would lead to opportunities for the flesh. Okay, so here you are now, you know, maybe between last week and now you've got something in mind, right? You're thinking about whatever, some freedom. You know, how is that freedom, your exercise of it, going to affect both you and others? Uh, you know, your spouse, children, friends, family, believers, unbelievers, etc. If I go back to last week... And I think through those three things I gave us from 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10, right? Paul acknowledges in those passages, that's right, okay. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Remember that? Uh, all things are lawful, but I'm not going to be brought under the domination of anything. All things are lawful, but not everything is going to build up. Well, you know, how then do I go about seeing whether or not um, something's helpful Something's going to dominate me or others. Someone's going to, something's going to build up me or others. Well, the way you answer those questions is by this standard here. Will it, in love or through love, serve them? Will it? It's a tough question. And I can't answer it for you because there's too many specifics, like I said last week. But you pick anything, anything at all you want to think about and apply that. Will I be able to, through love, serve this person if I do this, you say, but I have the right to do it. I get that you have the right. Nobody is denying that you have the right, but recognize that Jesus had rights too, and he gave them up. Are, are you better than him? You have the freedom to not give up your rights, even though Jesus had to give up his, chose to give up. Are you better than your Lord? Okay, well, that's between you and him then. You say, well, this person or this situation isn't worth it to me. I'd rather have my freedom then I'd you know, worry about them. Okay, they're not worthy of your love, I see. Maybe we, should, um, maybe we should ask Christ to apply your standard of love for others to you. You want that? I don't. Not at all. Now, this point is very specific, right? It is dealing with the temptation to use our freedoms as an opportunity for the flesh. And the antidote he gives is not to just go back and start randomly creating laws for ourselves. The antidote is uh, to run every freedom that you genuinely have through the test of Christ's love for you. If you exercise that freedom, will you, like Jesus, be able to serve one another through love? Second, Love, I said, is actually the fulfillment of the whole law. You know, Paul doesn't um, divide the law into pieces. Sometimes you hear people do that, like there's the, the moral law or, and the ceremonial law and the civil law and the whatever law and the speeding laws. And, you know, so you got all these things. And then like, as if love somehow is only a fulfillment of one piece of that, that's not what he says here. He says love is the fulfillment of the whole thing. I don't care where you look in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you pick it. Love will be the fulfillment of that. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, the very same passage that Jesus quoted when he was approached with a similar question. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you would fulfill the whole law. In other words, if we just loved our neighbors as much as we loved us, right? Because we love ourselves tremendously. There's no one in this world I love more than me, if I'm being really honest. If I loved everyone around me as much as I love myself, I wouldn't need the rest of the law. You know, Moses could have been given like a, a, like a little card-sized stone with just that on it, right? And he could have slipped it in instead of tablets and then five books later, right? It would have been a whole lot easier. But that's not how we work. But if it was how we work, then I wouldn't need to be told not to murder you. Because I would never murder you because I would never murder me. I love me too much to murder me. So why would I ever do that to you? 
You don't need to tell me not to commit adultery because I can only imagine the pain that would bring to myself and to my family. Why would I want to bring that to yours? You don't have to tell me not to steal. You don't have to tell me to do these things or not do these things. If I loved you as much as I love myself, I would fulfill the whole law at once. We would not even need the rest of it if this one piece was obeyed. And this is why the gospel of grace in Christ has brought an end to the law. We, we just don't need it anymore. It's over. Everything that the law required and more is fulfilled in Christ's uh, command for us to love one another as he has loved us. As I just uh, said last week, he's taking the command from Leviticus 19, the one that Paul quotes here, and he's upping the, the standard. It's not just love one another as you love yourself now. It's, hey, love one another as I have loved you. And Paul says here, look, if you just did this one, you'd fulfill the whole law. What happens if you do what Christ said? It'll fulfill everything that this says, plus, plus even more. So the way we fight against the flesh is not by making new laws for ourselves or others. The way we fight it is through love. Loving the Father like Christ did. Loving others like Christ did. Now listen, that... That, that truth can't just stay out in like the, the, the realm of a Hallmark card, right? You can't just leave it out there. It has to have practical ramifications, and it will have practical ramifications because if I'm trying to love God and others like Christ did, guess what? There are some things I'm just not going to do. If I'm trying to love Christ and, you know, and others like Christ did, there are places I'm not going to go. There's stuff that I just don't want to be a part of my life at that point. But those decisions are the outworkings of the way I fight against sin, not the way I fight against sin in and of itself. Do you understand that just real subtle distinction there? The way I fight against sin is through pursuing love, but the outworkings of that are going to show themselves in a multitude of ways, whether I decide to do this or that or whatever else. The decision is, not the, is just the outworking, but it is not the main thing. What's the main thing? Love. Love is the main thing. And this is why, as I hope you have noticed uh, both this week and last week, why I have chosen to not give us lots of very specific applications of this. I, I haven't. I don't think I've given any specific applications. I've brought up topics, but I've not told you what to do. Because, you know, I, I just don't want you walking out of this room, because people sometimes tend to do this, especially when someone up front who they perceive as having some authority in, over them in their life spiritually. I don't want you walking out of this room and go, well, Stacy said we shouldn't do this anymore. Or Stacy said we should do this from here on out. So we probably should listen to that and think about it. No, 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 no. That, 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 would, not, that, would, that would work against, I think, what the very thing Paul is trying to do here. What I want you to walk out of here thinking is, am I, through love, serving the people around me with the various decisions I make on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what I want you to walk out of here thinking of. And I want you to apply that to anything and everything that comes to mind. From the biggest decisions of your life, the most uh, prominent pieces of your day-to-day -day activities, down to the mundane, once-in-a-million-years kinds of choices. Am I, through love, going to be serving those around me with this decision? That's the question. That's what you have to wrestle with. And I want you to do it with everything. Why do you do the things that you do? And why do you not do the things that you do? 
Are they motivated by what we're talking about today, or do you have some other motivation? Because quite frankly, a lot of people have reasons, and their, their decisions aren't bad. Their decisions might be quite great. Sometimes they're motivated out of self-righteousness or fear or pride or a whole host of other things. They're not motivated out of a genuine heart to love, to love Christ, to love others. So I couldn't possibly answer these kinds of questions for you. Only you can. But, but here's what I want. I want to see us be the kind of church, the kind of people, the, the kind of families that give real serious thought to this question across the full spectrum of our lives. Everything. Everything. What you do for work, what you do at work, what you do with your wife, your husband, your brother, sister, kids, grandkids, it doesn't matter. You're single, you're married. I want you to, to do it across the entire spectrum of, of your life. Am I serving through love one another? Is that what I'm doing? Is that motivating all the choices I make? I want to hear that we are pursuing holiness, both individually, as families, and as a whole church but not through some arbitrary set of standards that we pass out in the bulletin on the way out. You know, I don't, I don't want to give you something to tuck in the back of your Bible so if you're ever curious about what you should do in a given moment, you can just pull it out and know, oh, I should do this, I should, no, no. I want you to be motivated by a genuine desire to love God and others like Christ did. I want to see us humble ourselves and lay aside our rights, not because we are forced into it by the cultural peer pressure of, of our church family, but because we genuinely want to be like Jesus and lay aside our rights like he did in order to serve one another in love. I want to see us washing one another's feet. I want to see us reaching out to the unlovely and the unlovable, both within Cornerstone and outside of Cornerstone. And I want to see us bearing with one another when we don't exactly agree on how best to do all these things. Because the fact of the matter is, we're not going to get it all right. We're going to keep making mistakes. We're going to try and fail and try and mess up and try and do it wrong and apply it wrong and start applying it to others wrong. And I mean, we're going to, we just, we just are. Most of all, though, I want to see us be the kind of Christians that the outside world can look in on in this church, in your community groups, in the various relationships that you have with other people, other believers, and they're able to go, I don't know what's different exactly, but I've never seen anything like that. I don't, I don't, some, they must belong to Jesus, like the real Jesus. Like I've seen a lot of other Christians, they don't look like these people. And that's not for our praise. I want it because of what Jesus said in John 13 and 34. I want the entire world to be able to look in and say, hey, those are his disciples because they love one another. They, they don't all look alike. They don't come all from the same background. They're not in the same stages of life, but that doesn't seem to matter. They have Jesus and they love one another. And folks, if that was true of Cornerstone, well, we, if that was true of any church, it would be an anomaly, unfortunately, in the grand scheme of Christianity today. But I think we would then be genuinely and truly walking in the Spirit and in a manner that was worthy of our Lord. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we, we come to you because we can't do this. We, we just, we don't have it in us. Our flesh is not ever going to submit to you. And so I can't just work myself up to love in the way that Christ has called us to. This is something that the Spirit does. We, we're going to see that here next in Galatians. This is something that your Spirit has to do in us. This is something that, that Jesus, ultimately, you have to live out your love through us. And so we need you. You are the vine. We are the branches. Apart from you, we can do nothing. 
And we acknowledge that this morning. We come and we confess how unloving we are, how selfish we can be and proud and how we can fight for our rights and, and then try to like hold on to the things that matter to us regardless of whether it hurts others and we don't even give thought to it. These are wrong responses to the grace of God we have in Jesus. This is not what the freedom given to us in Christ was supposed to, to do. But we've lived this way, many of us, and I pray, Lord, that you will forgive us and change us. Jesus, will it work in us? I don't know what else to say. We need you. Lord, we, we desperately, desperately need you to come in and make us like you. And so it's in your name we ask all of these things this morning. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.